Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we are of course commemorating VE Day. Uh, we have a number of historians with us who are going to talk to us about the final moments of the war and different, um, we wanted to do something different. We didn't just want to sit and talk about VE Day in Britain. We wanted to talk about what the experience of this date was, um, for lots of different people. So we have with us, we have Annabelle Venning, uh, whose latest book is To War with the Walkers. Hi Annabelle. Hi. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, and uh, Luke, Luke Daly Groves, author of Hitler's Death. Hello there. All right, Luke has abandoned the crazies on the internet for a while to come and talk to us. Uh, and we also have Peter Caddick Adams, okay. whose uh, latest book, of course, is Sand and Steel, which is a new history of D-Day. Uh, but he's also uh, been working on something to do with Churchill as well. Hi, Peter. Brilliant to be here. Thank you very much. And we also have, of course, Alina is here. And Alina's got her World War II hat on to talk to us about Poland. Hello, everybody. And finally, last but not least, of course, is Roger Morehouse, whose latest book is First to Fight about the Polish campaign of 1939. Hi, Roger. Hello, Alex. Hello, everyone. Um, I think I think we could all just agree that lockdown is going on too long now and we'd rather not be in it anymore, but that there are a lot of people worse off than <laughs> yeah. us. Is that the general consensus? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about today's date. Before we start talking about different interpretations, I kind of really want to address, and I'll say what I think, and then you guys can come in and say, I think, I know Luke partially agrees with me at least, this um, ruck that's kicked off between whether you should use the word celebrate or commemorate to talk about today, uh, it's not a new thing. So after the First World War, in the first armistice days that followed World War One, they were not the sombre spectacle that we now have. They were, in essence, a massive piss-up. Everybody who fought the war um, got together, celebrated um, that it was over, drank to their friends, um, and basically had a party. And then what you saw happening was that as the people that fought the war died out, it kind of didn't feel appropriate anymore. Like, you, you we're not worthy of celebrating it which i get i understand that and i understand why we've moved to something more reverent i just feel with world war Two that there's a very different ethos as to why there was a war in the first place and i personally don't think it's jingoistic um to be waving your national flags today i don't think um it's wrong to use the word celebrate because if ever 
there was something that should be celebrated. Um, it's the trashing of Adolf Hitler and the ripping down of everything he stood for. Luke, do you agree? Absolutely, one hundred percent. And and I sort of um, I sort of made this point on on Twitter recently um, because I do think that the, if if you can't celebrate. Um, the defeat of, of Nazi Germany and the Nazis, then, then what the hell in British history can you actually celebrate? Because to me, that that's a, a huge um, achievement that, that should be celebrated. And some people said to me, um, oh, well, you know, the, there are people who were, who were there at the time that, that uh, would disagree with that, you know, because you weren't there. And so I, I called my, my, my grandmother last night and I, and I said, do, do you agree with me celebrating this? And she was there on VD. She said, oh, yes, absolutely. She said, you know, those um, poor lads that went up there and, and died, you know, we should absolutely celebrate what, what they fought for and, and what they achieved with, you know, with, um, with, with the fall of Nazi Germany. So, yeah, absolutely, I, I, I agree with that. And also the, the sort of um, semantic distinction between commemorate and, and celebrate um, I was sort of forced to look into that a bit more than, than I had done before, but apparently celebration can be part of commemoration as well. So I don't really see it as, as, as much as a, of an issue. I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's entirely right to celebrate, um, the British uh, role in, in helping to defeat the Nazis. But it takes people for being idiots. It's like you're saying that people can't understand the difference between celebrating the defeat of the Nazis and not respecting the people that died. Um, for a start, it's not jingoistic because I don't think there's anyone waving their flag and said, we did this alone, we did this alone, it was all us. And secondly, I don't think anyone is not respecting the dead when they do this. I think that people are smart enough to know the difference and to say that you should not use the word celebrate in any way, shape or form because people can't make that distinction is is not giving people enough credit I agree. And also, you know, the people who had lost people by VE Day, you know, reading contemporary newspapers, you know, they were still relieved that there wouldn't be any more losses, that there wouldn't be any more fighting, that their neighbours weren't going to lose their sons. I mean, obviously, as we'll come on to, there was still more fighting. VE Day wasn't the end for everyone. But, but, you know, it was legitimate for people to heave a sigh of relief and, and we can you know be with them on, on that front as well and, and of course in, in like the first world war where the, you know there had been bombing of britain but there was obviously mass bombing of britain in the second world war so the civilians were you know marking their own deliverance as well the fact that they weren't going to be hammered from the skies anymore peter what do you think well, there's a huge contrast between the, the end of the, the two wars. And I think in the Second World War, of course, it's very black and white. Um, and we can identify evil and everyone is aware of it by May 1945. And, you know, um, we're all here with, with our different sort of backgrounds and expertise. Roger knows all about, um, uh, Poland and, and, and Alina too, which is how it starts. Um, and then, you know, Luke has an understanding of just, just how the evil uh, was uncovered in, in in 1945, and Annabelle understands that um, there's more to do in, in the Far East. But we need this outpouring of a relief because we've been pent up with with all this tension. Uh, as Annabelle's just been saying, we, we, we the home front has been uh, attacked in a way it never was, but before uh, in in the First World War. But there is this there is this contrast. It's important to draw out because. There's a generation of people who were young in the First World War, but were still around in the Second World War. So they've been through it twice. 
And you can understand why when Churchill suddenly says, or not suddenly, but announces that uh, peace in Europe, um, there is this huge outpouring because it, it's pent up emotions, not just of five years, but probably of 25 years because it's two world wars that you're suddenly hopefully cleansing yourself from and, and cleansing Europe of. I think as well, um, when we get to this sing-along at nine o'clock tonight um, that's supposed to be happening, it's important to remember that this is still in living memory as well. And if the people that do remember it want to get up and sing their Vera Lynn song, then I think we owe it to them to get up and sing it with them. Um, I don't. I think that makes a difference as well. Roger, do you agree? Uh, I do, and I, I agree with a lot of uh, well, pretty much everything that's been said. Actually, I, I, I kind of instinctively rail against um being told what to do at any time of the year and, <laughs> and that and that sort of that that comes on on the day as well but, but it's still something i instinctively also agree with i think we should sort of celebrate it absolutely celebrate it uh as, as luke said at the beginning if we can't celebrate this what the hell can we celebrate uh, in this country and it is a, it is a morally black and white case from our sort of narrow british perspective um, the only other perspective I'd add to that, which I'm sure we're going to come to, I know Lena uh, wants to talk about it, is that, you know, for a lot of people, particularly Poles and others, this, there was nothing much to celebrate on the uh, mm. uh, 8th of May 1945. It was the exchange of one form of uh, totalitarian control for another, uh, in a, in, admittedly in slow motion, but that was that was where they were. And so they haven't got too much to celebrate. So I think as long as we understand that there are other perspectives in this, uh, then, you know, I think we, we, you know, as long as we bear that in mind, we're, we're quite right to celebrate it. Absolutely. And we will, we will come on to, um, the topics that you're talking about. Let's just start at home though. I mean, I, I don't have much to add not being a Second World War historian other than my own family's experiences. I mean, and they did celebrate the absolute living daylights out of VE Day. The thing I love most about the photographs that one of my relatives had taken in Trafalgar Square um, of the celebrations is that every single one of them is wonky, which I hope means they were absolutely ratted um, and enjoying themselves because my, I mean, my grandmother was evacuated. Um, <laughs> yeah, my grandmother was evacuated and it was a nightmare and my great aunt ended up going and getting her back um my great aunt was nearly killed by uh, either a v1 or a v2 i've never looked up which but um she was going about her business doing some banking for the shoe shop she worked one day and had to make a call to run right or run left when she heard one she ran left and had she run right she would have died and um, so my family firsthand experienced the blitz experienced everything that went on in london um and and really made the most of celebrating uh, on the 8th of May when it was all over. Um, but Luke, you've got a brilliant anecdote, haven't you, about Buckingham Palace? Yeah, so um, on, on the 8th of May, 45, Hugh Trevor Roper, famous British historian, but at that time he's working for British intelligence. Um, he was actually, at that time, he was interrogating um, Nazis who had been captured to, to, with a focus on the German intelligence services. And um, as part of this, he, he managed to get to an invite to speak to um, the Queen's nephew, uh, John Elphinstone, who he'd been imprisoned at Colditz Castle. Um, but he'd since um, been allowed to return back to England and he was staying at, at Buckingham Palace with with um, with the royal family. And um, so we, they, they arranged to meet um, through John's brother, uh, Andrew, who was also working for MI6. And they, they arranged to meet on the 8th of May. But at the time when they arranged to meet, they don't know the significance of the date in advance. Um, so when this meeting comes to take place, 
um, you know, both John and, uh, sorry, both um, Andrew and Hugh um, travelled from MI6 headquarters to Buckingham Palace and they met with the huge crowds which are which are in front of Buckingham Palace at the time. And uh, obviously they can't get in, so they, they have to go round the back using a back gate to the garden at the back. And um, when they go get into the palace, um, they actually end up sharing a lift with the two princesses who are on their way to, to the balcony, Churchill, and with the parents. And the um, end uh, John's uh, apartments in Buckingham Palace, um, giving you know asking him questions about his time at Colditz. Um, he keeps pausing the interview to go and look out the window, and um, it's it's written in Adam Seisman's uh, brilliant biography of Hugh Europa that um, Hugh could see if he sort of craned his neck out the window below him um, the, the royal family, the tops of their heads waving to the crowds below. I could just um, imagine what a spectacle that must have been. And I, I think it's really um, a sort of nice tie-in as well to, to what was going on in Germany um, on the same date, on the 8th of May, because Hugh Trevor Roper obviously goes on to investigate Hitler's death, which is why I, I know quite a bit about him. Um, but o- over in Germany on the same date, on the 8th of May, there's actually autopsy in um, Hitler's remains and those of his wife, um, Ava Hitler, Nee Brown. Um, on, on the exact same day, so on the 8th of May, you've got a future investigator, key investigator of Hitler's death um, on the VE Day parade and then and then you've got Hitler's remains being being um, autopsy. Um, there's something this I think to, so I was just saying that there is something nicely poetic about the fact perhaps that he was being carved up um, on the day that everybody else was celebrating yeah. his demise. Um, we'll get to what was going on yeah. in Berlin in a bit. Um you also, as well, you've got okay. family reminiscences, haven't you, from the 8th of May, um, but further north? Yeah, so uh, my family, since the Second World War, have lived in the small town of Magul, but at the time it was it was a village, and it's um, it was it was actually Lancashire at the time. It's now part of Liverpool after the boundary. It's probably most well known for um, Frank Hornby, who was a resident, um, you know, the, the inventor of Hornby trains. Into the, mm-hmm. the train station on his uh, actually, actually, sorry Portillo on his sort of train station show that he did. Um, so yeah, there's a um, sort of uh, local history perspective on it, which is which is my sort of perspective. And, and there were street parties um, in in my local town, and I, I've sort of been looking at the, the pictures um, from this. And obviously I've heard local stories as well. And it's amazing because this is the street that I grew up on. And you can see, um, you know, they've got tables and chairs decked out in the street. And um, the, the tables and chairs are, are filled sort of, you can imagine a sort of long tables and chairs. They've got children on them and then um, there's there's the adults stood around them. But they're mostly women who are stood around them because obviously at this time, um, a lot of the men are still away. I mean, although the, the fighting may have finished in some areas, they're waiting to be demobilised. And there's uncertainty about where they, they actually might be going as well. Um, but yeah, so I, I hear a lot about this from, from, from my family. And um, again, this sort of, uh, I mean, my nine remembers Churchill's speech on the radio on, on, on the day. And um, th- this uh, sort of makes me feel even more sort of right to celebrate because of this sort of local and personal connection that I have to these events. And um yeah, I, I think it's it's amazing, and these scenes were obviously replicated elsewhere over the country, as I'm sure you know. Annabelle will will probably talk about um, that. It wasn't just in Liverpool and up the north, and, and it wasn't just in in London and in Buckingham Palace. The, these sort of street street parties were going on all over the place, 
And it, it was, as, as Peter says, a sort of outpouring of relief and, and just, you know, finally it's, um, it, it's over, you know, because Liverpool was, was quite badly hit in the blitz, um, as well. So, so, so from, from that perspective, it's, um, it, it must have been a, a brilliant relief. I, I mean, I, my town is, 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 is quite, um, peculiar in, in its history in that all sorts of aspects of the Second World War you can see from the local history of it. So that there was black American troops stationed, um, in Magull and, and that caused a bit of a stare at the time. Um, obviously there was, there was, um, attempts to make them feel welcome, but then some of the troops themselves have said that there was an issue with the sort of whiteness there at the time. And, um, there was even that. Polish troops stationed there as well. So it's, yeah, it's just amazing. It's just how this, this sort of global, uh, event can have such local ramifications feeding into these sort of personal stories and, and family narratives as well. And Annabelle, you've got relatives who are on the home front, um, on the 8th. Yes, that's right. So um, my family had originally been in Devon at the start of the war, but by the end of the war, they, uh, my great-grandparents had moved to Weybridge in Surrey. Um, and they were um, they had six children, and three of them were on the home front, and three of them were serving abroad. So when VE Day came, it was a real mixture of um, relief for the, what, the three on the home front that, you know, were obviously going to be okay now well in fact uh the youngest of them ruth who was a nurse um had by then gone to cairo to nurse um but b who was her older sister and harold um who was the youngest of the four sons they had um been in the blitz and of um, the v1s and v2s in london so there was relief that they were going to be okay and edward the eldest one had been fighting in italy so he his war was over for the time being but uh they still had another son my grandfather fighting and another son who they didn't know whether he was dead or alive Peter who was a prisoner of war of Japanese and so I think it must have been very hard for them seeing the bunting going up all around Weybridge seeing the street parties and yet for them you know the waiting and the agony went on because they still didn't know whether they were going to get their boys back home or not and yeah we've talked a little bit about what we're celebrating um today um and what we're commemorating uh from britain's narrow perspective but we did bring you guys together to uh talk too about other perspectives of the 8th of may 1945 um roger let's go to you because you're going to tell us about the battle for berlin and how this all fits in yeah um i mean i, I did um feels like a lifetime ago already. Mind you, February feels like a lifetime ago at the moment. <laughs> um, I uh, wrote a book about came out for Berlin at War. So it was um, basically a history of Berlin during World War Two, very much from um, first-hand accounts and diaries. And I did a lot of interviews at the time as well with Berliners of that generation. Um, and the end of the war for Berlin um, is catastrophic, you know, from the perspective of the ordinary Berliner. Um, you've got the the, uh, the Red Army is on the doorstep. They've um, they've kind of they rushed really rushed through Poland. Poland is um, um, a very swift operation in 1945. They're basically in, um, arrive at the gates of Warsaw in in that uh, they're there of course in August 44 because that's uh, as Alina will will know. Um, the Red Army sort of watches the Warsaw rising in August August and September of 1944. Uh, doing precisely nothing to assist it, apart from a few units of, um, uh, of, uh, of Polish troops who ventured across the river. 
Um, and then they sort of sat at Warsaw while the, while the Balkans are cleared and, and only really sort of crossed and lib- formally liberated Warsaw uh, in the middle of January 1945. So they had a sort of four-month wait on, on the banks of the Vistula. Uh, and then from January to effectively March, they make very rapid progress right across the rest of Poland and, and eastern Germany up, into the, up to the line of the river uh, Order. Um, and you can then got uh, the you know very fairly brief but a brutal battle at the Zelo Heights, which is off about 50 miles east of Berlin, which was um, a point where the the defenders, the German defenders, wanted to try and hold this sort of Soviet tide at this uh, these um, natural defences of the Zelo Heights, um, unsuccessfully but very bloodily uh, they are defeated at uh, at Zelo Heights. Uh, and from then on, coinciding with literally the last sort of uh, ten days, really, of Hitler's life, so from Hitler's own birthday, um, which is the 20th of April, um, that's when the uh, operation to uh, take Berlin effectively sort of uh, in most immediately. The ring around Berlin is closed on the 23rd. Um, yeah, so if, you, if you've seen Downfall, and we all should do, um, we've certainly seen the... Uh, the memes on YouTube of Hitler ranting and, and uh, breaking his pencils and shouting at his generals, that's from the, that's that moment where um, his, defense, his planned defence of Berlin is basically going up uh, down the Swanee. Um, he realises that the troops that he thinks he's sort of ordering around don't actually exist. Most of them have been uh, eliminated by Soviet forces. The Soviets have a massive preponderance of of men and material on the on the Berlin front, they've got something like two and a half million soldiers, all of course battle hardened, um, versus something like three quarters of a million in Berlin itself, and that's everything from you know, old men to uh, to literally children, uh, and some some hardened uh, veterans as well in, in in the mix. But it's a, a, a massive disparity of forces. Um, so they're always going to take Berlin. There's no question of that. There's a there's a very elaborate sort of phased defence which is planned um, with defensive lines in the suburbs, but they're very swiftly pushed aside. And by uh, the 30th of April, the day of Hitler's suicide, um, they're already fighting in the grounds of the Reichstag, which is barely sort of two three hundred metres away from Hitler's uh, headquarters in the bunker. Uh, and that's the point at which, of course, Hitler is told that there's no no chance of victory and that the, the Soviets are literally at the gate. And that's the point at which he kills himself. Uh, after that point, of course, it's basically a clear up operation for, for most of the next couple of days. And Berlin formally surrenders on the 2nd of May. There are a few um, places still holding out uh, a little bit longer. So the city of Breslau, for example. Uh, which is now Wrocław in south- southwestern Poland, that doesn't surrender until the uh, 4th of May 1945. So that's that was a really protracted siege all the way from the middle of February. Um, probably felt a bit like lockdown does to us. Um, so that was uh, that was another one that, that you know, lasted longer than Berlin did. And of course, you know, German forces are still in control of actually quite a large swathe of Central Europe already, all the way from northern Italy up to Denmark. Uh, on the 7th and 8th of, of uh, May 1945. So this isn't isn't really the end in that sense. Uh, you know, that doesn't really happen for a long time. That's, that's, that's the end of the fighting, but uh, there's a lot of cleaning up to be done. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um around this date 1945 you know it has just surrendered a few days before the red army is in control um it's a fairly difficult place to be there is some obvious obvious relief that the war is over for for ordinary berliners so they'll be very pleased about that but the red army is not a, a benign occupier at this point so it's they're very busy rounding up the men it's very busy trying to you know find hitler's remains and do that carry out those autopsies that uh, Luke was talking about. It's trying to make sure that none of the sort of senior Nazis escape the net. So it's very busy, uh, you know, as I said, rounding up men and making sure they have establish everyone's identities. Uh, and finally, it has to be mentioned the, uh, the sort of epidemic of rapes against German women generally, but particularly in somewhere like Germany, uh, which was horrific. And, you know, tens of thousands of uh, at the time and, and many more unreported. Uh, so the reality of the 8th of May 1945 for Berlin is a very, very different one from before about, about street parties and bunting. Uh, Luke, let's bring you in. Um, tell us specifically, obviously Hitler's dead by the 8th of May, but you mentioned that the Soviets yeah. choose this day to do their autopsy. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and the sort of the reason for the delay is that... Um, on, on the, they take the, the Führer bunker on, on the 2nd of May, but the, from the outset, really, the, the, the Soviet investigations are not what we would consider now, definitely in hindsight, to be a sort of professional forensic operation because the, the first uh, people in are, are, are 12 women from the, the Red Army Medical Corps and they steal Ava Brown's lingerie um, before the people who are actually tasked with um, investigating what happened to Hitler arrive. And uh, wh- when that happens... Um, they end up misidentifying another corpse as, as Hitler at first, um, and, and you can, it's evident you can see you can see photographs of this of this corpse on the internet that it's, it's not Hitler. Um, so because of this, they end up actually reburying the actual remains of, of, of Hitler and Eva Brown um, because they think they've already got Hitler's corpse. Um, and then when they realise that the other corpse isn't Hitler, they they dig up the actual remains of, of Hitler and Eva Brown, and they're eventually subjected to autopsy on the 8th of May. And um, the, the 8th of May is is significant, uh, the fact that it's VE Day on which the autopsy takes place, because this has been used um, as an explanation by um, Ada Petrova and, and Peter Watson, who wrote a really good book on, on the death of Hitler. Um, it's been used as an explanation for the scientific inconsistencies and, and sort of oddities in the autopsy. Um, which are acknowledged by, you know, not just historians, but forensic scientists as well. 
So the, one of the things is that the autopsy says that, that Hitler only had one testicle, which is something which doesn't turn up in his medical records that I've seen, which says that his lower regions are normal. Um, and the other thing is that in, with the autopsy, they don't um, dissect the corpses of Adolf and Ava to subject them to toxicological analysis to confirm whether they died from cyanide poisoning. But they do this with the corpses of the Goebbels family, so all their children and um, Joseph and Magda Goebbels themselves. Um, they even dissect um, Hitler's dog, Blondie, but they don't do it for the, the, the actual corpses of, 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 um, of, of Adolf and Ava. And it's this sort of weird oddity, which is, which is just one of the many sort of weird things about the Soviet investigations. But an explanation of it has been, well, perhaps because of the circumstances of VE Day, um, the people who were, who were, the doctors who were performing the autopsy had a sort of celebratory atmosphere about them, so they were making mistakes. And um, Petrova and Watson have even suggested that they, they might have cut it short because they wanted to go and celebrate on the 8th of May as well. So, um, yeah, so a really sort of interesting moments of history, um, celebrations in London, uh, while the Führer of the Reich is being um, subjected to examination uh, in a, uh, by um, Red Army doctors. Yeah, I can't believe you've taken the song away from me about Hitler only having one ball. <laughs> It's my childhood, man. People of every school bus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Alina, let's move on to you. Talk to us about early May in Poland. To understand what is happening in Poland in May 1945, we need to go back to July 1944, to the liberation of Majdanek. Once Majdanek was liberated, the Soviets imprisoned Home Army members, hunted them down and locked them up it became another prison camp for Poles. Why was this? Well, they were seen as as bad as the Nazis. They were anti-communists. They had to be destroyed. Therefore, they were arrested and imprisoned and sometimes even executed. The Soviets at the time, and I'm going to use this term very, very, very loosely, were liberating Poland. They weren't quite liberating it because they were actually intending to stay. They stood on the banks of the River Wisła in August 1944 and watched as Warsaw burnt to the ground. They sat and watched as 63 days passed and the Poles basically were exterminated by the Germans. Then it took them another three months before they crossed into the city. They had to get rid of the opposition. The Poles were fighting for independence. It is not what they wanted. It is not what they needed. They ignored the existence of the Polish government in exile that was in London. They installed their own puppet government. And in the meantime, as they were crossing to Berlin, as Roger mentioned previously, the Soviet soldiers went pillaging. They plundered food, factories, farming equipment, everything. They stripped Poland bare. Women were raped, farms were seized, and free speech was completely taken away. There's evidence of this from British soldiers that were repatriated. The AK, so the Polish Home Army, Armia Karajowa, was officially disbanded in January, sorry, 1945. But many carried on the fight. They carried on the fight as cursed soldiers, Wyklenci in Polish. But any Home Army soldiers who ended up revealing their identity were arrested. They went to court. They were tried, they were locked up, many were executed. The lucky ones were released after a few years, after being brutally tortured. Mokotov prison will actually be opening up 
as a museum pretty soon. So if anybody's interested, I think it's in 2023, it will be opening up. You'll be able to see for yourselves what these people actually went. They were locked up with German war criminals like Jürgen Strupp, for example. Basically, it was one aggressor that was swapped for another. Poles who were liberated in prisoner of war camps, concentration camps. Poles who fought with the Allies in the Battle of Britain under General Anders, General Sosobowski, who bled for the freedom of their country. They could not return. Vitor Pilecki is a prime example. He ended up in Auschwitz, collected information, created a resistance movement, escaped with information, wrote up a report, handed it to the Allies. He then ended up fighting in the Warsaw Uprising, ended up fighting in Italy with General Anders. And then he had the option to basically go back to Poland and fight. His family were back there, so he made the decision to go back. Unfortunately, that was his death sentence. He was arrested, put in Mokotov prison, tortured, and then executed. His body has not yet been found. My family is also another example. My great-grandfather, General Władysław Langner, the general in charge of Lwów in 1939, escaped the NKVD, and his family were being hunted. They were looking for him. They harassed my family in Poland to try and find out where he was. When they finally did, they censored all the letters. It was not a very good time. So these people could not return. That is why there are so many second, first, second and third generation Poles in England, in America, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand. There because we couldn't go back. Which basically brings me back to May 1945. There was no freedom and Poland only became free in 1989. Yeah, so clearly nothing to celebrate if you're Polish, um, whether you're in Poland or not, in May 1945. Um, let's, Annabelle, you've already alluded to the fact that um, for a lot of families, even if they are British, there's not necessarily um, a celebration. It's like a, it's not black and white, is it? And your own family, you had uh, two relatives still fighting um, because of course the war isn't over in the Far East and and one of those is completely missing at this point isn't he? Yes so Peter was uh, taken prisoner at the fall of Singapore that's Peter was my great uncle the third of the four brothers in the family Uh, and he had not been a soldier before the war he had his two older brothers were professional soldiers in the Indian, Indian army but Peter had been a tea planter he joined up he fought all the way down through Malaya and he was captured at Singapore when uh, the British surrendered and he spent the next three and a half years as a prisoner of war. And during that time, my great grandparents just got one postcard from him, which is a sort of standard format saying, you know, I'm, I'm well, I'm, I'm being treated well. None of which was true, of course, because they were being treated horrifically, brutally. Um, and by VE day, they hadn't heard from him for at least a year. So they didn't know whether he was dead or alive and all the information which wasn't much, coming out about the Japanese prisoner of war camps and the conditions in them um, was just so horrifying. There was, you know, they knew there was a very good chance that he he wouldn't be alive. Um, And they they didn't find out um, for some months yet. They were lucky that it was good news, but, you know, for many people it wasn't, of course. There are prisoners of war, you know, in, in Thailand, in Burma, in Borneo, in Japan itself, you know, in Indonesia, what's now Indonesia, and not just um, prisoners of war, but civilians who'd been captured um, in the Philippines too. And, uh, you know, those of us who are old enough to watch Tenko, um, which is about women and children who were kept uh, prisoner by the Japanese um, in, in modern day Indonesia. Uh, you know, we know that there were many, many 
Dutch, British, American civilians who who were still undergoing terrible, terrible hardship, who didn't even know that VE Day had happened um, until months later and had no idea whether they were going to, you know, live to see their own liberation. And in fact, after VE Day, these were some of the worst days of the captivity because the Japanese were, you know, their navy had been was being defeated and the Japanese even the Japanese guards in the prison of war camps were really short of food and as for the prisoners they were you know surviving on next to nothing and so um for, for people who were already undergone several years of malnutrition and terrible mistreatment you know this this was an absolutely desperate and for many of them a fatal time you know well back home people were celebrating and very sadly there were people dying and, and still being tortured in the camps. I think what we're taking from this is while it's okay to celebrate Britain's perspective um, that the 8th of May does mark the end of the war in Europe for us, that it that clearly isn't um, a global celebration. Uh, and it's not even um, the people that you, the person that you think might benefit the most doesn't, does he, Peter? No, I mean, we, we, it, it, it's, it's a curious situation. Um, there is an understanding in Britain that, uh, in political circles, uh, that de- de- democracy has been sort of suspended. Um, we have a national government, but there's been no elections uh, since way before the war. Um, and so there is an understanding that we, we will go to the polls uh, and a new government will be elected and um, that the sort of bipartisanship of uh, Labour and Conservative both both agrees that. Um, and I think there's a sense um, that Churchill will be re-elected because he was such a popular um, wartime leader. But that, that's divorced from the popularity of, of his party. Um, and, of course, what's been happening on the home front is... Uh, uh, a realignment of education, the Beverage Education Act of 1944, and then um, all the aspirations for the health service, you know, who are looking after us so wonderfully at, at the moment. Um, and that's all been piloted, steered through, and there is a sense that the country needs to, to move on from where we were before the Second World War um, and the idea of a, a new dawn. Um, and so very soon after VE Day, there is a move to dissolve Parliament um, uh, and a long drawn out campaign because you put a campaign right across the, uh, the world for all the servicemen and women, uh, in far flung corners of the globe, give them a chance to, um, acquaint themselves with the issues of the, of the election and then vote and voting takes three weeks. Um, and of course the great surprise to everyone and Americans still can't get their head around this. Um, and it's a great surprise to all of us, maybe. Um, that uh, when the election results are finally announced in July, so we're only talking a couple of months hence, uh, it's not Winston Churchill who stays in number 10. It's his deputy prime minister, um, Clement Attlee. But I think, you know, the, the takeaway from all our discussions, and this has been so fascinating, um, is, you know, we all have a family memory that relates to, to VE Day, wherever our antecedents were. And, and it, it's it's a mixed emotion. Um, because otherwise we're thinking about people but not place. But on VE Day, every single place in the world stops, pauses to take stock. It's like a, a, a metaphor. Every single town and village in the United Kingdom. But every country in the world, there's, there's a ramification, there's an implication. And that's why 
um, today so important because whether we're commemorating, whether we're commiserating, um, whether it's an anniversary, whatever it is, it, it's a moment when the world stands still and realizes that something really significant has happened, certainly in Europe. Um, and, but the ramifications go much, much wider. And that's why it's important that we really are stopping celebrating or remembering in, in all different ways and, and for a variety of different reasons. And, uh, you know, least of all, there's Winston Churchill thinking he's about to be re-elected uh, and it doesn't happen. And I think my admiration for the man is it, it doesn't knock him off his stool. He, he, we would think you get hugely depressed having steered your country through war and then the ele- electorate rejects you. And not at all. There he is writing his 10 books of uh, non-fiction, 10 books of speeches, uh, before he's back in as Prime Minister again in 1951. I mean, the the mind boggles, and he's in his 70s by now. But there we are. I just think whether you uh, agree or align yourself with politics or not, we can all agree um, he was utterly, utterly unique. Yeah, and, and his, you know, his legacy lives on, I think. Uh, he, he's, you know, one of the metaphors for uh, for the war years. Um and, and, you know, when we look back, if we're doing this from the United Kingdom, we look back and I think we would understand that, that the United Kingdom had a good war. We're on the, the winning side. Um, and if you want a metaphor for how to how we got there from utter despair in May 1940, um, it's one man um, and, and, and that was Churchill. Um, so there's our shorthand for how we got to today, VE Day. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. I think that's a great place to finish um, because we have explained why we will be celebrating. We have talked about commemoration um, and how you can do both concurrently. And I think we've also as well um, looked at a wider perspective is that while this is a day for Britain to be proud of um, and perhaps excited by, it's definitely not the case across the board. So thanks very much for coming on and sharing all of that with us. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Really nice to talk to you all. Join us a bit later on when we'll be down the pub. We'll be going down to the Mary Rose, our virtual boozer, to debate man slash womankind's greatest achievement. There's some crazy suggestions in there. There's some obvious suggestions in there. um, And there's a very worthy winner. So do join us to see who came out on top. Tune in tomorrow for the beginning of Bobfest, our weekend of programming dedicated to Band of Brothers. Uh, possibly, well, not possibly, it is the finest TV series ever made. Uh, so on Saturday, you can hear from historians James Holland and Paul Woodage, as well as screenwriter John Orloff, who penned episodes two and episodes nine. That's the D-Day episode and the Holocaust episode. They'll be talking about how you take a unit and their experiences in World War Two and turn them into a television series and and what has to give to make that happen um, and how you can replace that with using artistic impression to try and tackle the responsibility of commemorating uh, this unit's service in the Second World War. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as $1 a month uh, by visiting our website, which is www.historyhack.podbean.com. All of your donations are greatly appreciated, uh, and we hope we're going to have enough to keep us going after the lockdown ends, albeit at a slower pace before Alina and I crash completely. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. 
The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.